listening to Canary Cry Radio. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havoah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtika, and the sons of Ramath, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalni, and the land of Shinar. Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 83. 83. Our guest today is the Chancellor and Senior Professor of Theology and Ministry and Senior Professor of Biblical Life Education at the Biblical Life College and Seminary. He is a doctorate in theology from the North American School of Theology and he's behind the KingdomIntelligentBriefing.com and most recently is the author of the new book, The Shinar Directive, Preparing the Way for the Son of Perdition. We would like to welcome Dr. Michael Lake to Canary Cry Radio. What's up, Dr. Mike? It's great to be with you guys. Absolutely. Great to have you here. And so is your, your book is out right now or it's nearing its publication? It's been a marathon just to get it in print. It was supposed to be out um, November 30th, but there was a delay with the printers, and hopefully we'll have it ready by the 15th or 16th of this month. Great. Awesome. By the time uh, people are listening, it may already be available, so look out for that. But before we get into that, one of your uh, uh, one of the bios that I was able to come across online said that in 1995, some events transpired within your ministry that opened your eyes to the reality of occultism in America. So can you tell us a little bit about that event and how it changed the trajectory of your ministry? Several things happened. One, uh, my wife kind of quietly had suffered with depression most of her life. And, uh, I mean, she did a good job of hiding it. Most people didn't even realize that she was fighting depression. I don't even think the family even really understood it. 
Mm. And God supernaturally delivered her. And uh, she began just absorbing the word. And eight months later, the depression came back. She went out in prayer. And God said, you know, you, you got demonic forces on your bloodlines, and you're going to have to learn to fight those. And so she did spiritual warfare, what God had taught her during the eight months, began to back them off. Uh, at the same time, uh, when the occult in the area began to be afraid of some things that she was remembering because she was uh, she went through satanic ritual abuse as a child, uh, there's evidence of it as well as mind control, and uh, they started sending them into our churches, and we begin we begin ministering to some multi generational saintness, and uh, tell you the truth, this all hell broke loose. Uh, found out the reality of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not when you know. Oh, Lord, I'm just trying to pay this bill this month or I got a hangnail. Spiritual warfare is, God, I've got covens trying to kill my family. They're sabotaging our vehicles. They're chasing us on the highway. Uh, they're, uh, they're circling our house at night, uttering curses at us, trying to find a place for them to light. Holy moly. And so, you know, when you're going through things like that, we were poisoned once. They tried to crash a jet into the house. I mean, just all kinds of crazy things. And we saw the supernatural protection of God. Uh, at the same time, I'm ex-military, so I want to know my enemy. So I began really researching the occult, what they believe, uh, what they what they use against us. And so in, in the process, we did a lot of changing. Publicity or living by the word of God no longer became a luxury. It became mandatory for survival. Wow. That's so fascinating. I find that so fascinating. Um, what sort of things that, like did you read about that you kind of saw employed against you guys? They love to uh, sneak people into the church, and they can either appear to be super spiritual and, uh, you know, imitating gifts of the Holy Spirit, or, or uh, we have found that they, with, if, if a pastor doesn't know how to put on the helmet of his salvation right, they can actually project things into his mind that he will begin thinking it's the Holy Spirit, and before long he's listening to them rather than God to, to create his sermons and what he's doing in the pulpit. Uh, everything from that to they'll come in, uh, as as the wounded bird uh, needing help, and then they'll end up just absolutely seeking what they can find, the weak spots in those ministries. Right. Uh, the families down, we have seen them uh, kill pastors. We have seen them dismantle and destroy churches. And it, it's it's been an interesting uh, wake-up call. Uh, it's like you wake up and find out you are in the matrix. Right. That's crazy. How close did they come to you know succeeding in some plans of theirs? Uh, they frustrated us. <laughs> uh, well, we have, and I remember one time we were going to um, Jefferson City, and it was in an old country road, and we saw a semi coming at us that lost control. And really, we had nowhere to go on the highway because there was like a 20-foot ditch on one side. And uh, we literally saw the hand of God come down, pick up a semi, and straighten it out. As wow. Wow. And the only one more surprised than us was the driver. His eyes were about as big as the, as as his as his face as he drove by. That's crazy. Gons, is that you? Who is that phone going off? That's. My, I'm sorry, guys. Oh That's yeah, right. no worries. Nice microphones pick up yeah, everything. I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah, no worries. You can just if that happens, you can just take the time and shut it off because we'll edit through. But that's crazy. That's that's like a huge, like physical manifestation of spiritual warfare. Uh, it, sweet. Well, my wife had a, a witch crawl in the van after my family. Crawl in the van? And uh, she shares that story. In her. We're, we're in a van. I'm going in to get some groceries. Two cars pull up, and they kind of block everybody's view of what's happening. And this witch crawls in the van, begins to manifest in front of my wife and my kids. Wow. 
and my wife, you know, she's kind of rolling up uh, her her belt strap for the seatbelt. She's going to take this woman and just roll. You know, she, you know, you mess with my kids, I'm going to take you out in the parking lot, and I'm going to show you how they <laughs> go. Time for Mama Bear to come out. Oh, you're not kidding, man. <laughs> <laughs> and the Holy Spirit just fell on her, and she said, you know what, if you don't turn from what you're doing, you're going to be destroyed. And the minute she said that, this the, the, the power of this woman just melted. It was gone. Wow. And she she got out of the van and said, you mean turn like this? And then she began walking off speaking in uh, what I think is probably some, some twilight language trying to curse Mary. Wow. And that was, that from, that was the beginning point. That's where we started. And it just got crazy after that. Yeah. Yeah, It's so interesting because a lot of the church doesn't realize that this is real. You know, it seems like the, the covens and the Satanists, they believe in the spiritual realm more than the Christians do. It's sort of alarming. Yeah. It is. They, the, the Western society has so dumbed us down. Yeah. We, we don't know that the spirit realm is the greater reality. That's why I like when I was listening to you guys uh, talk with Josh Peck. Uh, he's right on the money. It's, it's the higher dimension. And we're, we're a projection of that. So it, it's, it's not that the spirit realm is a less dimension. It's, it's, it's not that it's less solid. It's more solid. It's more real than what we have here. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I could just listen to stories like that for an hour and a half. But what were some of the like really effective ways that you guys found to sort of deal with this kind of stuff? I mean, cause, because who I mean, I guess when somebody's thrown into a situation like that, they learn real fast um, if they're going to survive. Uh, you know, number one, keep the keep the doors closed in your life. Keep sin out of your life. Uh, every day, we plead the blood of Jesus over every known and unknown door, so that if there is something that we we don't know, because right. we have a lot in our culture that comes from what the Watchers taught mankind or, or this basic paganism that we in the church many times were oblivious to the fact of its occultic origin. Right. So every day, you know, God, just, just put the blood of Jesus. If there's doors that I don't know about, I put the blood of Jesus over them. I forbid the enemy to use them. Now, Holy Spirit, correct me. Show me where I'm missing it. Show me if, if I need to change some things. And, you know, you ever start praying like that in the heat of battle, it's amazing what God will show you and how readily you're, it's like, okay, you told me not to eat that. I'm not going to eat that. You told me not to do that. No more arguing, God. I see it in word. That's it. Right, right. Did you employ any kind of fasting or times of intense prayer, you know, that was deliberate, things like that, that were found in the Bible at all as uh, direction? We both did, and, and uh, my wife even more than I. I mean, you know, in the midst of this, where we realized that I'm kind of coming out of the occult haze that most ministers are in in America, and I had been put kind of spiritually asleep, and this this will wake you up. Uh, but my wife is is one that can just get lost in God in prayer, and uh, I've seen her pray in lightning strike. It's like it's like you know, mm-hmm. anointing hits her, Jack. You better you better make sure you're right with Jesus because <laughs> that unction hits her. If you know, one of these days there's going to be grease spots, is all I can say. And I think that's going to be manifesting more uh, as, we, as we approach the end times. Right. Wow. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue, I think, into your book. And, um, you know, you, you covered a lot of things, especially early on, the first uh, couple chapters that we're pretty familiar with on this show uh, the history of the conspiracy that is, you know, in our reality. Uh, Genesis three with the fall of mankind, where where 
it's sort of the origin of everything that we talk about, Genesis 6 and all the strange activity there with the sons of God and the Nephilim. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to spend too much time there, but just to go over it briefly, what were some of the more surprising things that you found, you know, throughout the, the whole concept of a conspiratorial history, Genesis 3, Genesis 6? Were those pieces of information that reframed how you read the Bible, or was it something that you knew about prior to all of this, uh, you know, uh, waking up to all these different aspects of the occult? I, I knew it. I was lucky enough, my mentor, when I was going through seminary, uh, didn't buy the Sethian uh, theory. And so I, I was raised in an academic environment where, hey, these were really the sons of God, and, and we had angels doing things. And, and so I, I didn't have to uh, have God change my paradigm before I began devouring some of this stuff. Uh, what really was surprising to me, because, you know, you always know the occults out there, and there's, you know, there's witches and different things. You don't realize the extent in which our, our very civilization is based on everything they do, and, they, and they, their organizations control the money, they control the media, they control the news, they control every aspect of our life. And the only way of getting free of that is really begin learning to walk in the kingdom of God and doing things God's way. Mm, totally. Well, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a little distracted, still thinking about some crazy spiritual warfare stuff. Um, and so, you said your your wife is going through this journey with you, and was she just as uh, privy to the whole thing as you were? She was more so because I, I think that somewhere in in her youth, while they were abusing her, she, you know, you, you for someone who is DID. Uh, where they have split their minds, they'll, they'll have back parts which are stronger, which in, in most instances will be occult loyal parts. Right. I think the difference with my wife is her back parts decided that they did not like anything of the occult. They had uh, resisted it. They were finding a way of getting free from it. So she she kind of like came out from the back forward. Right. right. Uh, once she began to see how real that God was, how powerful his word was, uh, that that's when she began to be a dynamo. Uh, in the kingdom of God, she found out that the, the name of Jesus works, the, the word of God works, and, and that prayer uh, has more power than I think any, any Christian be, can begin to realize. If you understood the power of prayer, uh, you wouldn't do anything else but that. Wow. Wow. So, now you had this uh, event, and you're, you're aware of the uh, Genesis 6 um, stuff, and now... Specifically with your book, what is the basis with your new book, and um, you know what kind of journey would it take somebody on? Uh, you know when they get to reading it. You know, I, I've kind of avoided end time prophecy over the years. I, my passion was really teaching people how to live the word. Uh, but the last couple of years, I've just begun sharing at some of the seminars and conferences that I do. Just some elements. Hey, this is what the Illuminati is doing. This is the origin of paganism, and and to my surprise. Most pastors, I mean, I had bishops, I had uh, Christian educators, I had uh, pastors, uh, as well as just the average person in the pew. None of them had a clue of what was going on. Right. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we'll go ahead and and come back after dinner. I know you're not supposed to be scheduled to speak, but why don't you go ahead and speak this afternoon to this, whatever God gives you. Hmm. Because there was a hunger for it. And so that really prompted me to begin writing the book because I, I wanted it to uh, you know, each one of those chapters, if you guys read through it, I could have actually taken one chapter and continued to expound on it and it would have been a book in itself. Right. 
But I wanted it to be an intelligence briefing to help believers begin to connect the dots, to understand the conspiracy that, that it's, it's very real and that it has, it has been going on for over 5,000 years. And, and once you, so it's, it's a process of opening their eyes that if they can begin connecting the dots, the, the biblical dots and the historical dots, they'll begin approaching life differently. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it seems like your launching point really to get into the Shinar Directive specifically is Nimrod and Babylon. What did you find out about Nimrod that really sparked this rabbit hole? You know, one of the things that we, we, we Nimrod's almost just a footnote in the Word of God when you look in Genesis 10.8, but I, I've got a pretty good digital library, you know, like with Logos and Word Search Bible. And when you start really digging in and just doing a research of what Babylon was about and what he was doing, uh, the first thing is when I looked at where it says Nimrod uh, began to be a mighty one in, in the earth, that word there, began, is kalal in, in the Hebrew, which means to profane oneself, to defile oneself. And so it's, it's not that he just began to, uh, to be a man of renown. He actually did something to pollute himself, uh, which ties in with um, transhumanism today. But what I thought interesting, when you go down further and begin to dig deeper in this word, there's also a type and shadow of the Antichrist in it, because the same word can be to wound fatally, to bore through, to pierce through. And so it, it's like something happened that pierced through his DNA, and that caused him to become something else. He, he corrupted his DNA to, to become a gibberim, uh, which is a type and shadow of the Antichrist. The Antichrist has this mortal wound. Everybody thinks he's going to die. But then when he comes back in almost a resurrected type of life, he's, he becomes something more. And so even in the origins of Nimrod, we see a reflection of what the Antichrist is going to be. And it remains consistent in everything that he planned when you, when you discover what he wanted to do at Babel. Uh, well, what he in, in fact, you can. I almost see him trying to, if you will, rebuild Atlantis, mm. uh, which is a constant theme for for the uh, for the esoteric community today. They're still trying to rebuild what they lost before the flood. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh, the the new Atlantis being sort of a blueprint um, when the United States, or you know, a century before the United States was formed, and uh, you know, I covered that a lot in in the first movie, Age of Deceit, uh, Fallen Angels in the New World Order, where I go through some of that. I mean, when I was looking at that, I was very surprised that, you know, our entire country almost is based on some of those occult promises, the occult dream. And it's fascinating to look at where we are in history now because, you know, for most of history, things were pretty low key, pretty, pretty flat in terms of progress. I mean, things were developing, but nothing, nothing dramatic. And then just in the last, you know, ever since about 1900, Things just exploded, and um, you know, what, what's your take on you know, the sudden explosion of technology and science, and, and and how do you parse those things out? When you begin looking um, in the Book of Enoch, there there is a, a symptomology of the influence of the Watchers on humanity. They will uh, begin trading technology and concepts uh, for. Uh, access to people so that they could use them in, in their breeding program. And the Book of Enoch says that they were bound for 70 generations. And so when you go from about 3500 B.C. to uh, 70 generations, being an average generation of 70 years, it puts you at about uh, 1900. In fact, one of the things I postulate in my book is that the elite have been waiting all these millennia 
for the Watchers to be released. And so the, the century before the Watchers are released, they introduce both eugenics and, uh, and uh, evolution to prepare mankind for what the uh, Watchers are going to do. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially in, in, in terms of the theory of evolution being sort of a fundamental building block for ideas like directed panspermia and, you know, this whole alien agenda that they're trying to push as well as part of the whole cultural shift into accepting this idea that, you know, we're planted here and we're from Mars or whatever, you know, whatever the storyline goes. Absolutely. And well, it, it does two things at first. It draws man away from God because that, that's, that's the spirit that, that is the uh, things that Nimrod does. Let me go ahead and pull you away from God and I'm going to give you something else. And all of, and both evolution, eugenics, and even basic science, uh, they all had this element of Gnosticism, but then they, they kind of veil it and it becomes very secular, but it always evolves around back to becoming Gnostic again. That, you know, the very ones that deny that there is a God end up working to become a God. How can you try to become something that you deny exists? Which is right. always a paradox in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned uh, Nimrod's defilement or whatnot, and there's a lot of theories about that, but do you have a theory specifically on what that may have been or just sort of a general DNA type of thing? I think it was probably some type of DNA type of thing, although there may have been spiritual aspects of it, but he did something that not even the Watchers could do. I think the Watchers had to do uh, their modifications in vitro and then let these things mature. Uh, he was able to take the knowledge further somehow. That he was here was a full-grown man, and he was able to transmogrify himself into something else. That's why he is the uh, the poster child for the for the the Masons and the Rosicrucians, and uh, for the alchemists. The alchemists, you know, the, the whole concept of turning lead into gold is not about getting rich; it's turning the lead of what man is now into a god, right. which he was promised to do. That Lucifer promised in the Garden of Genesis three. Uh, and in a sense, Nimrod was able to facilitate and to perfect that promise, but they have never been able to replicate it since. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's almost like a, a transhumanist prototype. Absolutely. First one. And, and so, is there something in the language in Genesis 10.8 specifically that, you know, other than, you know, obviously, the word Geborim is in there, uh, and you, you do it in a little expository uh, Hebrew expo exposition on the word et in your book, and... Uh, I know that word is also in there, and then Yalad, which is, uh, or I'm sorry, it, Hillel, which is began, and and you know it can be translated as defiled. Um, is that where you draw your some of your your theories? Some of them, as well as he he became a Gabor. Now you have to use the um, principle of first mention. The first time Gabor is used is in back in Genesis six that that these Nephilim became to be mighty men of renown, and so. That becomes the definition, the exploits, the power, the intelligence, the cunning they had in warfare, all these different things uh, is embedded in that word Gabor so that even later on uh, within mythology, even within the word of God, uh, the concept is drawn from that. So even David's mighty men are called Gibberim, but it's because they were able to do mighty exploits like these ancient men of renown. Mm. So the, and what's interesting is this one here in Genesis 10 is the second mention. And so he was able to replicate what happened in Genesis 6 in his own life. Right, yeah. I mean, there's. I think we've talked to Dr. Ken Johnson and a few others. And it's interesting because, you know, how, how would that happen? You know, the Genesis 6 
reading says that the sons of God were there and also afterwards, uh, or the Nephilim were there and also afterwards, after the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And so, uh, and obviously we see throughout the Old Testament um, what appeared to be the reemergence of the descendants of the Nephilim with the Anakim and the Zamzumin and all of them. Obviously, it comes from the line of Ham. And I know there's some debate as to, you know, what was really going on with Ham or Ham's wife or, or you know, was it something completely spiritual? I mean, there's all sorts of debates, but uh, spiritually, yes, there's something going on. But in terms of physical changes, you know, I don't know. I, I guess we're kind of picking at the same bone uh, with the whole Nimrod issue. But, you know, I'm just curious because someone, you know, an academic as yourself, it, it it's always fascinating to me to speak to someone who comes to those conclusions that, you know, there was a genetic change. And so I'm always curious as to how, you know, re- where those ideas really stem from, if not biblically, then through uh, extra biblical text. Well, you know, and you look at, you know, how different people fall in different categories. L.A. Marzulli, that there's multiple incursions of angels, or you have Rob Skiba, that there was just one incursion, they're bound up, and so there's probably manipulation of DNA. And either one of them are very viable, although when you look at the Book of Enoch, the, the 70 watchers or the 200 watchers are supposed to be bound underneath the earth, so it's kind of hard for them to be uh, raping women uh, after that in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament. But either way, I think when uh, God changed the physiology of man with the flood, I mean, man went from living a thousand years to 120 years. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of changing in, in our physiology uh, within years after that. So the further you get away from the flood, the smaller and smaller and smaller the Nephilim become. Right. And I, I think what we're seeing with the alien inductions today, I believe that they are an extension of the watchers. There's a lot of debate. Uh, I know I've talked with Gary Sturman and others that believe that they are uh, that they are a, an avatar, that they are a, a biological, mechanical avatar, whether for Nephilim spirits or for the Watchers themselves to facilitate what they're wanting to do in the Earth. But they usually center around uh, reproduction. Why do that? It, it's like, you know, sex is really simple. You, you, you don't need experiments to, to figure that one out. But if God modified the DNA of man with when the canopy broke, they're trying to find ways to circumvent it using science to replicate what they were to, what they were doing uh, in Genesis six. What are your thoughts on that and how it ties into the UFO phenomenon? I believe the the primary thing of the UFO phenomenon uh, is to number one uh, entice nations with the display of advanced technology because the watchers when they show up they always say listen we have this advanced technology you know we were we were your progenitors they go back to some form of panspermia so we're going to trade this advanced technology to you for access to your citizens and in fact uh, there's there's evidence that the nazis were channeling watchers that's one of the reasons that's one of the places they got their advanced technology uh, as well as I believe Nazi Germany was not supposed to win the war. That as we, under Operation Pet- uh, Paperclip, as we embedded all these scientists and, and the foundation of NASA, the foundation of CIA, and no, no telling how many other clandestine efforts, what they brought with them is, listen, there are beings out there that will give you advanced technology if you come into treaties with them. And so it, it was seated in all the, the, the allied nations and in Russia and uh, so I think part of the UFO phenomenon is, number one, to show their superiority so that nations will work with them, and then number two, to begin doing experiments on mankind to try to circumvent what God did with the flood. Yeah, you know, what, I'm, I'm curious, I, and I 
maybe I can do a word search real quick on your book, but uh, do you talk about at all the passages in Daniel um, that describe the Antichrist as being, I believe it's the God of Fortress or worshiping the God of Fortresses? In writing my book, I've been speculating on the possibility that that has something to do with the possibility of this idea of extraterrestrials being involved. David Flynn had done some research suggesting that the God of Fortresses represents some connections to Mars. And obviously, you know, you start bringing up Mars and you get into all kinds of speculative areas. But have you looked into that at all with uh, some of the passages in Daniel? No, I haven't, but I'm going to now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's interesting just bringing that up when you look at where the watchers fell on Mount Hermon. Uh, Nimrod had a fortress on that very mountain range. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thinking. Uh, let's talk about the, the Tower of Babel a little bit, because that's sort of hand-in-hand hand with uh, Nimrod and Babylon. What kind of things did you discover or uncover about the Tower of Babel and how it relates to what we're looking at today? Well, not just the Tower of Babel, but Babel itself. I was, you know, you kind of have in your mindset ancient civilization way out in the desert somewhere, and it's, you know, they're, they're working on this tower, and there's not much there. In, in my research, I was blown away that uh, Babylon at that time was about 200 square miles, about the size of London, that Nimrod had uh, 12 palaces there, that they had a, a wall that was almost 500 foot high. Wow. I think to kind of protect the the the, the uh, if, if God was going to do another flood, uh, because it was about the, almost the same height or a little bit higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza, and also that was the original about the original height of what the Titans would have been the first time around with the with the Nephilim in Genesis six. But you know, to me, if you're if you want just height, you would you would begin building on the side of a mountain. You wouldn't go in a valley. But I, I believe that uh, Nimrod, when, when he altered himself, he was able to see maybe portions of other dimensional realities that we can't. And he knew that that area was very thin there to where it'd be easy to create a dimensional portal. And so there, there had to be some ancient technology that he was trying to revive. Uh, there's evidence that he even, uh, in, in a sense, caused all the Nephilim in the area to begin working with him in the building of all this. So there was a knowledge uh, of technology that he most likely had through the line of Ham that they were trying to replicate to open up a generational portal to be able to get into the third heaven. And, uh, you know, the, 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 you, you know, God didn't have a problem with the skyscrapers or he'd blow the one in Dubai out the water. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's not that, it's that they were, they were doing something, and, and I think we're seeing that similar technology maybe in a different, uh, a different way uh, with the CERN Collider, and I think with all these different things, with opening these micro uh, black holes, they're trying to find a reliable way, because, you know, they, they, can, they can open up these portals using occultic practice, but it's very haphazard. Aliester Crowley could do it very well, but uh, L. Ron Hubbard and, and Jack Parsons didn't do it very well and really messed up when they tried to do it in the, in, in the desert here in America. But if you can just simply flip a switch and, and cause it to happen using science, it becomes more reliable. And so I, I think that in the, he was actually wanting to storm heaven itself. Yeah, wow. that makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I think I sent you an article that I, that I wrote, a blog post, um, this may or may not end up in the book, but I was uh, going through the book of Jasher, 
And in chapter 9, I believe, um, of Jasher, around verse 38, it talks about the destruction of the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting because it says that, you know, a third was swallowed up by the earth, a third was burned up uh, with the fire that descended from heaven, and a third of it is left to this day. And it it says that its circumference of what's left uh, is a three days walk, or or the entire, you know, the the tower, quote-unquote, is a three days walk. So I kind of did, you know, a little study on the Derek Yom and how, how long a day's walk is for back in the day. And the circumference of the tower, according to the book of Jasher anyway, is somewhere around 260 miles, which is between 216 and 260 miles. And it got me thinking like, well, if that's the tower, I mean, that's a really big tower. I don't know if the tower itself was that big, but it does speak into this idea of a particle accelerator since you know CERN right now has a a 27 kilometer ring, and um, back in the 90s, the United States was trying to put together their own superconducting super collider, and right. it was called Desertron. And uh, you know it, it, they lost funding and they weren't able to do it, but they were trying to create something at 87 kilometers, which is about 54 miles. So I mean, when you start thinking about in terms of size. Uh, it's possible that Nimrod had some kind of system going. I mean, it may not have been the particle accelerator that we see today, but similar sorts of technology to open, you know, gateways, so to speak. Uh, you know, there's physicists today that are talking about that, saying, "Oh, we should be able to open and see into different dimensions." And and these are modern physicists, you know, that work at CERN talking about this. So, uh, you know, really speaks into this idea that there's nothing new under the sun. I've even speculated that maybe the similar colliders are, are simply part of the equation, that you can add what uh, the government's doing with HARP for the atmospheric heaters. And, and what I think is interesting is there ends up being 33 of them around the world. Mm, right. Interesting. Yeah. So I wonder if it's not maybe using them both together to where there's harmonics and, and all these different things that are involved in accurately opening up these portals. Right. And then they've publicly stated that the... Uh, the harp system, at least in Alaska, that they closed it down. So I don't know if that's a, just a public front to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're done with that. No you know, visitors hint, hint. allowed. Yeah. Yeah. And let, let's see your electric bill. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> so let's get into some of, uh, let's keep going on with the idea of Nimrod. I mean, your, your whole uh, section there, chapters five through nine, is under the heading Unfinished Work of Nimrod. Uh, so walk us through some of that. You know, you bring up a lot of the dark conspiracies and the occult and the New World Order. And you, I mean, I guess we we already touched on a little bit of the transhumanism and dimensional portals and things like that. But, you know, what was the, the uh, incentive there to go through some of those elements of the unfinished work of Nimrod? I, I began looking and, and just seeing, you know, this this is... What's interesting, if you go into any Masonic Lodge, of course, they wouldn't let you in the uh, the upstairs where there's no windows. But there's a trapezoid-shaped altar uh, which is kind of reminiscent of the uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it, it is sacred to all those within esoteric circles. And the the trapezoid is also uh, known by another name. It's it's a frustrum that uh, there's, a, there's a sense of frustration with it because it's not finished. And I believe that that became the symbol of the uncompleted work of Nimrod, that he started something that he couldn't finish, that... Uh, that God intervened, and I, I really believe that God didn't uh, forever stop what they were doing. It became a tactical delay. 
that they're trying to continue today. And you begin looking at uh, the, the trapezoid uh, within the occult. That, that's also a, an object or a symbol or a shape that, that draws demonic forces. Uh, when you look at, uh, there was an old uh, television show called The Munsters. Yeah. And when you look at those old type of haunted houses, they will have gables that are trapezoid in shape. Uh, the, during that era, they knew uh, that those type of houses would draw uh, spirits. That's why they'd always seek to have uh, seances in them and so forth. Uh, you go, if you would go to the United Nations today up in New York, there is a meditation room where all the leaders go to meditate, to contemplate how they're going to bring about the new world order. And there is a uh, black uh, solid iron uh, squared or rectangled uh, altar in the middle of it. And you'd miss it if you weren't careful, but the room itself is shaped in a trapezoid. Right. So that you're sitting there and you're meditating on how to finish what Nimrod started. Right. And you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because um, all those sorts of, you know, sacred geometry and geometric uh, structures and things like that, they're making a big comeback just in mainstream culture. I mean, there's a, there's a big uh, new age movement as we've talked about before on the show. But I mean, I've gone to people's houses who I just sort of you know, they're just friends. They're, I didn't think they're into anything weird, but they'll have like these pyramids or like these wire things shaped, you know, in trapezoids or things like that. And, you know, it, 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 I don't know if they just think it's decoration or if it's just hip to have pointy objects in your house. <laughs> um, but, you know, what you mentioned here brings up a lot of uh, kind of spooky things about that. In any symbolism, whenever I do research, I look for the symbolism, then I look for the basic philosophy. And once you understand the basic symbols of the occult, I mean, you'll see it embedded in, in uh, the Catholic Church, you'll see it embedded in, in Islam, you'll see it embedded in all the esoteric uh, societies. And so with those shapes, not only come occultic power, but, but are, are reminders of occultic philosophy. And they will, they will attract demonic spirits. Uh, one of the things, too, that I'm, I'm still trying to research, I have been told that up in Alaska, they have found the twin to the Great Pyramid of Giza under ice. Huh. And uh, that it's actually generating power uh, enough that it would uh, basically supply all the electrical needs of Canada. And so Ooh. I'm doing some research to try to validate that, but it came from a very reliable source. That's that interesting. fascinating. Especially since, you know, why does the United States have a huge... A state that's <laughs> separated by so many miles of another country. It's an interesting oh, thing to speculate. To begin with oil and what used to be gold. You know, I don't, I don't know how much the the gold rush is still going on in Alaska, but uh, the, you know, if we really understood what the elite were doing uh, and we put a stop to it, gasoline would be twenty five cents a gallon because the largest oil reserves in the world are still in the U.S. But between Alaska and what we have here in the continental U.S., we would put OPEC to shame. Uh, we're just not allowed to touch it until they want us to. Oh, OPEC. <laughs> That's what I like to say. I say that a little bit too much, actually. Um, yeah, well, that's... And I kind of like that. We're, we're kind of talking about some stuff going on today and how it relates to your book. And I think that's... With anybody who writes a book like this, I think that's the most important uh, facet of the whole... Um, I mean, it's the reason you write the book is to let people know what is going on today and how it relates 
to uh, the thing, the biblical things and the extra biblical things in the past. Um, so, I mean, what else is there? Just give me some, what's the most interesting thing that you allude to in the book or that your research has led you to? I think just the level of mind control that they have over the public. Now, you know, we know about MKUltra and, and all the things they, they did with that. But right. people realize that the greatest mind control device in the world that every one of your listeners probably have two or three of in their households. Mm-hmm. It's called the television. Right. That they have, they have proven that when you watch more than about two or three minutes of television, that the, your brain waves change. They go into an alpha state. Uh, and, uh, you know, alpha is almost like a semi-hypnotic state. It turns off the analytical side of your brain and basically puts you into receiver mode that it, it, you, you no longer are able to critically think through what's being presented to you, that they just have this constant feed. And we have, we have seen them on television start with, you know, leave it to be with this being the, uh, you know, type of family, and it was representative of what was in America. And along the line, we ended up with Roseanne, and, and it just kind of went downhill from there, that they have used it for social engineering. They have reprogrammed us. <laughs> I love how Roseanne made it into the, the armory. <laughs> Of the of the new world order, yeah, this function was cool, you know, <laughs> and and they'll use heart, you know, they they will they will use uh, humor and a lot of other things while you're laughing at their jokes or you're being at odd with the special effects of your favorite show. Right. There's always this element that they're weaving in and out, especially when you realize that every television program, every commercial, anything that either shows up in the movies or shows up on the air is written by a select few of the Writers Guild, and I think there's about 2,000 of them. That, so they, they are able to, let's say, you, let's say you do a clean story that's just exciting, would be a great movie. When they actually go to writing the screenplay, they start interweaving their agenda into the movie so that they can begin transforming the way that an entire culture or society thinks. Right. Now, what would you say to somebody who would just come out and be like, well, you know, it's not all some big grand scheme. It's just sort of the, uh, you know, it's the consequences of, you know, that's what people want. And so the writers just give them what they want and they're just blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, no. Um, you know, <laughs> do we want action movies? Do we want do we want shows that make us laugh or or get us to forget sometimes about our miserable lives? You know, when people are going through spiritual warfare. You know, I've heard pastors say, you know, just sometimes when you get aggravated at your congregation, you just got to watch something blow up every once in a while. <laughs> but Jeez. The reality is they're they're also feeding us stuff we don't want. Uh, and, and the Expendables, which the first two movies were very, very popular. You had all your old, fa- uh, old favorite action you know, heroes in it. Right. The third one flopped because they tried to interject the new agenda uh, of redefining sexuality into the movie and that it was rejected by storm by the very people that made the first two a success by going and watching it over and over again in the movie houses. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Can you go into that a little bit more? From what I understand, I've not watched it, but I've, I've talked to other ministers that, you know, hey, it's my new favorite movie. They tried to interject in there. I think it was between Jet Li and Arnold Schwarzenegger that there was a type of love affair between the two. And you, that and action movies does not mix. <laughs> that just sounds like a joke. It I does can't sound even, like a joke. That's bizarre. I mean, that sounds like a joke. Um, for it to interject it into our culture, they're putting it in places where it doesn't even fit. 
Right. 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 You, you know, recently Jim Carrey went on the, there's a lot of Jim's, uh, Jimmy Kimmel show and he came out and he did the triangle symbol over his mouth with his tongue sticking out. And, you know, people, Jimmy Kimmel asks, you know, hey, wh what's that all about, you know? And Jim Carrey did this interesting thing where he was like, oh, you know what it's about. You're a part of it. And is that a gang sign? Have you, uh... Oh, like, you don't know what it is. You don't know what that is. I have no idea. Well, you don't know. Jimmy Fallon doesn't know. David Letterman doesn't know. Well, we don't know. All the comics and show business don't know what this is. <laughs> right? Yeah. What is it? Come on, Jimmy. Seriously, the time is up. People are hip to this kind of stuff. I, I'm here tonight to blow the lid off it, to be the whistleblower. I'm sick and tired of the secrets and the lies. It is the secret symbol of the Luminati, and you're a part of it, and it is it, the all-mocking tongue. It's the symbol of the all-mocking tongue. And I'm sick of it. I want everybody to be in on the joke, man. You know what I mean? For years now, talk show hosts, people on television, people in sitcoms have been hired by the government to throw you off the track, to distract you, to make you laugh and stuff like that, make you happy and docile so you don't know what's really going on. You know? And they get out there in the woods in a circle naked and they decide these things. And, you know, and you know, look at him. Look at him trying to, look at him trying to come right up. It's hilarious. Hilarious. And, you know, and I'm sick. Of, uh, hold on a second. You know what they're trying to do? Who? This thing is buzzing. Hold on. They're trying to turn us into, you know, uh, you know, consumer drones of some sort. Hold, I just got to get this. And, yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm in the middle of blowing the lid off some... Uh, What happened? I'm sorry, Jimmy. I was temporarily interrupted by my iPhone 6 Plus. That's a big one, huh? 5.5 heads-up HD display. <laughs> I think what I was really trying to say because I think people will enjoy Dumb and Dumber this weekend. And that is what I thought you were about to say. They should all go to the theater. <laughs> they should all go to the theater tomorrow and see it. And they Because we could use a good laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And it's, you know, it was a joke, but... It's not, you know, it's really interesting. It's, or is it or is it deniable plausibility that, oh, yeah, you just, you know, it, it's like when you mention mind control, then they say, oh, yeah, you watch Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson. And I say, yeah, we did, but we knew about it, you know, about a decade before they brought the movie out. So now what's your excuse? Right, yeah. Right. And even, um, you know, just modern cultural references. But Al Roker, recently I saw, a, a, you know, a video, and who knows if this is, uh, legitimate or not, but it's just interesting to point out. Al Worker was doing whatever he does in the morning, and somebody had mentioned the Holy Spirit, and immediately he went into kind of a trance where he was staring at the camera, didn't blink, and he went on for a good 30, 35 seconds. It was really bizarre. You know, it's one of those things where, you're, where if you're privy to it, you're going, oh, I wonder if that's a trigger word to shut him off, you know. Or trigger phrase, because I think the phrase was make room for the Holy Spirit, which, you know, these, these guys love to mock. Right. The, 
of Christ, and they'll, they'll put a lot of that in there. And when you realize, too, that there, there's certain uh, movies they love to interweave uh, into programming like The Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland. You know, The, the Wizard of Oz, and then that time you say, well, you know, it was a great flick, whatever, way back then. But why is it still so permeating our culture and our society today? It wasn't, you know, it was good, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> Right. And whenever, and whenever you, what I have seen is where, whenever they need to trigger uh, all their people across the United States, whether they're mind control or just people in the know, all of a sudden you will see a proliferation of of Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland being put in all the commercials. The next thing you know, it's being mentioned on every show, and it's like, you know, it's like there's too many clues here. It, it, once, you, once God opens your eyes, you're thinking, how how was I an idiot not to catch on to this years ago because there's there's too many references there's too many things going on uh there was a guy the 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 um the guy that killed Versace if you if you if you remember that when uh, the cops were trying to chase him he had this this multiple had been trained in and uh in evasion they, they didn't know where he was and I think it was it was ABC. It was either ABC or NBC. Did uh, they were interviewing some people back from the uh, gay community in San Francisco, I believe, where he was from. And and all of a sudden, this guy makes this crazy statement. He said, "Well, you know, he's going to need to have ruby red slippers to be able to avoid the police." Right. It's like uh, he, d- dude, they don't even know where he is. He's he, he's like a Rambo, and these guys can't find him. <laughs> he, he was dead within twenty four hours. Right, Andrew. Cunanan? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, but are you talking about the uh, 97 uh, killed himself afterwards? The Miami police were looking for him. and Yeah, that, that was a re- that was either can be a recall trigger or a suicide trigger. In fact, when my wife and I was watching uh, that particular news broadcast, the moment that guy said that, Mary turned to me and said, he'll be dead in 24 hours. Wow. So do you think, you know, Russ Dizdar talks a lot about this Black Awakening um, how much do you subscribe to that idea that there are, you know, a whole slew? I mean, I think Russ says there's, uh, I think he says 10 million in America or the world or something like that who are ready to awaken, basically. The, the, you know, the, the, according to Russ, the, the Black Awakening is their terminology for a time when there will be a massive trigger and, you know, these people will wake up. And, um, you know, I, I think there's something to it, especially with a lot of these interesting uh, events that have transpired with uh, you know the Colorado movie theater shooter and the Arizona shooter I mean there's been a lot of that stuff in the last few years what's your opinion on some of that stuff well uh, we were his book actually helped us understand some of the things that we saw in the area that uh, God finally moved us out of we, we would see some of these people on certain dates end up with black uniforms that uh, had military powers or, or not military powers but uh, uh, law enforcement power sometimes that uh, that weren't even deputies, and so he's like, you know, why, why all the black uniforms? What's what's going on? And so I, I think he uh, he helped us understand that. And uh, what's scary is when you realize that the Black Awakening is one small portion of those that they have under their control. That there are other groups for other purposes that are still laying in wait, waiting for the proper trigger. Uh, where we were at. Um, we, we believe, my wife and I have become convinced it was more of an experimental area where they were trying to hone uh, their techniques. And so they tried a little bit of everything from just you know, the basic sex slave to uh, maybe even developing psi abilities. And uh, so that we, we had a hodgepodge and a lot of failures 
uh, of botched things. I, I really think in, in the Fort Leonard Wood area, they probably closed it down when the hearings came out about MKUltra and, and different things. But when you understand the protocols that they use, they always use uh, for their local support team those in the occult. And so they embedded it in the occult in the area that are still using some of the old techniques and things to build their power base in the Ozarks. In the Ozarks? Yeah. Why the Ozarks? I think it. I think this actually, this area serves as a spiritual base for some of the things the Illuminati are doing in America. I think they'll have like the the financial base in uh, in New York City, the the um, political base in in D.C. But the the Ozarks are, are really known. We in fact we have a um, book on the history of the Ozarks and just how the proliferation of occultism and backwood woods witches are uh, within the Ozark, as well as. Uh, People coming down from St. Louis and other areas, more metropolitan areas of, of doing things. Uh, Jesse Ventura even did a, an, a several episodes on the underground cities that they're beginning to build here in the Ozarks to prepare. So when you know when the prophecy begins hitting the fan, they actually have someplace safe to go. Mm, fascinating. And it's interesting too. Uh, I believe when I was in Branson a couple of years ago, the bus guy who took us from the airport to the hotel where the conference was at. Uh, was telling us about the the uh, immense amount of limestone that was there, mm, um, right? And, and in conjunction with that, I think it's interesting that you know, with a lot of paranormal, you know, ghost hunting stuff, there's lots of reports of the smell of sulfur uh, when it comes to you know uh, a ghost sighting or some kind of encounter. And I always thought that was interesting because you know, in Revelation twenty. Uh, when God talks about the lake of fire, uh, you know, some of the translations say the lake of burning sulfur. <laughs> so right. it's like, hmm, maybe there's something there. Well, you, you know, there's there's a, a lot of kept secrets. We had we had different people in the occult that when these days would switch and they'd sometimes, uh, with Mary and I, God puts this spill your beans anointing on them. And they just start spilling their secrets. Several of them kept on saying, we're the cog in the center of the wheel. And I don't think it was just talking about them. I think it was talking about the Ozarks. Uh, and then you listen to uh, testimonies when Bill Snublin was in the occult, that uh, he had to travel down into, the, into a part of Arkansas that was still in the Ozarks, that one of the top druids in America uh, was down there. And so he had to go down there to be instructed by this guy. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, Bill's, Bill's an interesting guy. We've tried to have him on the show. I haven't been successful in reaching out to him. Or hearing back from him anyway. We've reached out to him a couple times. But uh, well, why do you think that is? What's what's going on there in uh, Middle America? It's seemingly, uh, you know, just some flat lands and some you know nice folks uh, doing what they do. Well, I, I think this the 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 history of the backwoods. It's easily to, to control the population, uh, especially like when they were doing the experiments. I think they were doing around Fort Leonard Wood, and I think it's been replicated at many military bases that are kind of in secluded areas. Uh, but also just the, the backwoods um, tend to breed a lot of things, whether it's occult, uh, you can go anywhere from Wiccan to the KKK to neo-Nazis and everything in between seems to be in the Ozark Hills. And we're, we're noted for that. If you remember uh, back with the old Bill, Beverly Hillbillies granny, she was actually an Ozark witch. And they, they, wove, that really? in, they wove that into the theme of, uh, of yeah, yeah she, was, she was an Ozark-style witch. And so that you would you would have the higher levels of the occult come in here and reward the witches for for doing things back out of uh, the public eye, maybe. Hmm. I've heard rumors about uh, even giants being dug up near 
you know, the Ozarks and, and some interesting, um, I know the native Americans have had some of those stories, but, uh, I, I recall, I can't think of it at the moment, but there, there were some researchers that talked about some potential, a race of giants or a race of something going on in the Ozarks. So yeah, I think there's something interesting going on there. There's also a lot of Indian mounds, uh, that are, uh, there, there was a, a strain of the occult, uh, down around Fort Leonard Wood that uh, were very involved with the Indian mounds down in Pulaski County, and so you'll you'll so there's there's some connection. I don't know if those Indian mounds in particular were um, just druidic, or if there was maybe some you know connection possibly uh, with a, a Nephilim tribe. That I've not, I've not seen any historical data come out on that, but I ha- I have seen that uh, many of the occult are very druidic, and so those Indian mounds are sacred to them. Right. Let's let's kind of get back to your book. The final three chapters are dedicated to preparing the remnant. And so before we go into some of that, can you tell us who are the remnant? I think that uh, the remnant are the ones that really love God, and they're not just religious Christians. You know, you always have the 80-20 principle, and I think that probably 20% of those that really say they're Christians are Christians. They're, they're Christians in, in name only. They were raised that way, but they really don't have a powerful, dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And so I think that the first ones to really get serious and to become the standard bearers in the last day are the remnant that there's a spiritual awakening going on uh, around the world. And I, I even think you're seeing that with your podcast, that the Christians are saying, you know what, things aren't right. And uh, it's, it's time for me to wake up and really get serious about my walk with God. Uh, I'm seeing the church go out so far into left field in some areas, in some sections of the church, that they're not even in, in the ballpark anymore. And they're trying to make that normal Christianity where uh, I think we're seeing a group of people that are, are getting serious about prayer, getting serious about opening up the Word of God and begin living by what the Word of God says rather than what society is demanding of us because it's constantly trying to transform us into being a Babylonian society. Mm. Yeah, totally. Now, we, now you have two books, correct? Mm-hmm, I do. Now, how has the response been to uh, the first one, and is that sort of along the same lines? It was. It was uh, one of the things that we we kind of ran across uh, in in all of this is the really dis- discovering uh, what God says about eating, and what you know the one of the primary things of, that God introduced the children of Israel to when he gave them the Torah was to try to teach them what was of his kingdom and what basically were the doctrines and the teachings uh, of Nimrod that came through Babylon, that came through Egypt, and being able to separate the two. And so there, there's a lot of medical evidence to back this up. Like, you know, God says not to eat pork. And when you actually do an exegetical study from Genesis to Revelation, that never really changes. We, we misuse some scriptures. We take them out of context and read into them that which is not there. Uh, you know, it, it's not something that's going to send you to hell, but it, it can affect your health. Mm, so right. it, it, it's like, you know, you know nobody, nobody liked pulled pork better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> or bacon, you know, everything's better with bacon on it, right? Uh, but we, you find out scientifically that when you eat large amounts of pork, that you can go to the doctor and be tested for cancer, and it'll show up positive in your blood. Hmm. Uh, God basically says two things. Number one, I, I made that as a garbage disposal. What are you putting it in your mouth for? 
Uh, the second, even Tom Horn reveals this in one of his books where he talks about the Madman of Gadara, that it was actually uh, a um, ceremony for Dionysus that the guy did, and, and the, the animals never left, or the demons never left, and, and that they use uh, piglets at the beginning of the ceremony as a conduit for these spirits to come into the participants. And then at the close of the ceremony, after they have done all their debauchery and everything, and manifesting many times the exact same strength and, and veracity that the, the madman of Gadara did, then they enter back into the swine before they are, until those demons go back into Hades. And so there's a very a real possibility that when uh, they went into the pigs and there was no ravine for them to go over to finish the ceremony, there was a cliff instead. They did that to finish the ceremony for, the, for this Dionysus ritual. Right. And... But then all occult, pork is sacred. That's why Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered a pig to Zeus and desecrated the altar. And if, if pork would desecrate the temple of God, then maybe it might affect the temple of God now. That, right. And so it's, it's, just, it's just doing an exegetical study and just looking at everything openly and honestly and not trying to read into, into Scripture our own culture. Right. right, and this right. this uh, you know ties in well with you know another question that I had that sort of ties into all of this is um, you know there is a movement right now uh, they've been labeled the Hebrew Roots movement and it's not a specific group or anything it's just kind of a scattered phenomenon where you know people are starting to look back at the uh, you know the Torah and and seeing things that are there that as you said don't seem to have changed really. But you know it's it's difficult because for me personally I I've looked at a lot of the Hebrew origin stuff and it's a very I think it's a very important study to inform us a great deal about how to understand the New Testament how to understand the work on the cross and things like that but I feel that there are some who take it a little too far and and it becomes a legalistic thing and um you know wh how do you where do you draw the line there how do you balance the two I was always taught that, you know, the, the balance is in the middle of the road, and if the devil can get you to go off into either ditch, he will. Mm. And, and, but when you look historically at every move of God, whether it was the formation of the Baptists, the, the Protestant Reformation, or, you know, the, within the charismatic movement, uh, there, there are always those that, after it begins, come in to really try to muddy the waters. And so I, I think right now that I, I even hate to even you know, be identified with the Hebraic Roots movement because it also tended to draw all the nuts and the flakes, uh, which we saw in the charismatic movement, we have seen in the, in the evangelistic movement. They, they're, they're just being attracted to the uh, current movement. What's interesting about the Hebraic Roots movement is that there's a spiritual awakening going on that, it, I mean, guys in the middle of the jungle in Africa are waking up and God is saying, go back and read my Old Testament. Right. And wow. so... But we have to look for the balance and, and don't get so caught up with the nuts and the flakes because I, I can illustrate that in, in, in dispensationalism and the development of dispensationalism and the development of, of evangelical Christianity. We see it with every single movement. And so there's, there's this, God begins to do something. Satan comes in and brings all these, uh, all these people unskilled in the word and sometimes even mentally unstable. I've seen that too. Uh, plus, what we have discovered here in the Ozarks is there's, they have utilized that also in, in mind control programming. There's something called uh, the Zion programming that they, once this began to take off, they began incorporating that into a lot of the things that they did to cause these people to go off so that 
Christians get offended with it and don't take a serious look at it in a balanced way. Yeah, that's interesting. We are coming off sort of the uh, Christmas episode, and you know, it was a gosh, it was a, such a heated debate each year. It becomes this you know big Facebook discussion with hundreds and hundreds of comments and threads and uh, a lot of mudslinging and things like that that go on. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so so it's it's a it's a challenging topic, uh, I think, for a lot of Christians because yes, they are starting to wake up, but I feel that sometimes the the people get a little too into the, uh, I guess, the knowledge sinkhole, the, the you know, sort of like the same sort of feeling you get when you first learn about the conspiracies about the world. You kind of feel like, oh, I have this secret knowledge and, and, and you know, you want to share it. And, and you know, so I, I see the, the what you say about the balance is very important. And see, with, with my introduction to Christmas and all that stuff, mine came from a different source. I didn't, I didn't have someone from Jewish, you know, Hebraic heritage saying, you know, this is really not of God. I had, my wife was ministering to a, a woman that was a multiple, and we're, we're getting up to about December time, and let me tell you something, my favorite time of year was Christmas. My wife had an entire room of our house uh, that was designated the Christmas room, okay? <laughs> we had everything. Year to, round? All year round. No, just it, about, so. about Thanksgiving till right after okay the christmas and i mean we even had i'm a daddy santa claus dancing you know and in that room we i mean we went all out because that was even as a kid that was my favorite time of year but we we had this uh woman that her back altar was a witch and so you know we're starting to find out things we're try, starting to come against them and this woman gets in my wife's face and says we're going to take you down because you're getting ready to do our holiday mm. and you know my wife oh yeah i'll show you every christian in the world's praying right now, we're going to put you under the dust, you know. And right after Christmas, we got sicker than we ever had. Everything that we own began to break down, uh, even the new stuff. And so I had to step back and begin to really do my own research about it. And in fact, I found a interesting book you guys may want to take a look at. Uh, it's called 4,000 Years of Christmas. And it's, it's not written by a Christian. It's not written by a theologian. It's written by a journalist who simply said, how cool is it that all the things that we do, all these wonderful things of Christmas, uh, can be led back 4,000 years? And uh, so I, I began taking a look at it, and we said, okay, if, if they're going to use it, and we, we saw them wreak havoc in churches right after Christmas, that they would send witches into the churches to draw the, the violation, psychic violation of, of some of God's standards, and then use it against the churches the next year. We, we saw them uh, end up you know, with pastors dying in car accidents. Um, wow. I'm not saying this is going to happen to everybody, right? Uh, but when, when you actually get into the crosshair of witches and the occult, and they're after you to kill you, um, that they will use whatever advantage. And when we, we found out two things, we found out what they're really doing with Christmas. We also found out that uh, they desecrate the Feast of Tabernacles every year, at least in this area. Because all the feasts, uh, they're not Jewish feasts, they're about Jesus, and they're, and they're about what he has done, what he's doing now, and what he's getting ready to do. Right. And they're divine rehearsals, so that we, we can understand as, as things unfold, and they're also, uh, if, if you don't go through it by rote, but you simply go through it as being led by the Holy Spirit, it becomes cycles of sanctification in your life, like in the spring feast. It's not about going through your home and making sure there's no leaven in your house, it's about going through your heart and make sure there's no leaven in your heart. And it's the same thing with the fall feast that 
uh, these 10 days of all, I'm making sure that there's nothing between me and God or me and anybody else that if I've wronged anybody, I've got to go make it right before I get to the Day of Atonement. Because that's a, that is a divine rehearsal of the Valley of Armageddon. Right. And so there's a lot that we can add to that. And, and when we begin, we, we, we personally as a family stop in Christmas and begin looking at the feast, uh, they tried to kill us over that. Wow. Because we're not supposed to know about it. I feel like they're trying to kill you for a lot of things here. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's this, you know, and then anymore anybody says, you know what, Mike, I'm going to kill you. I said, well, go stand in line. It goes about three miles. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we, we did, you know, we, we didn't defend Christmas per se, but we did sort of look at some of those claims that, that are against Christmas. And, you know, I really don't want to go off into that because I feel like that's. Christmas yeah. is over, man. I know. It's, it's the over. New year. It's the new year. But uh, let's look forward a little bit. You know, based on your studies, uh, you know, we just uh, turned the calendar year. It's 2015. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, 2015 was the year that uh, Back to the Future, you know, goes into uh, in part two, you know, the future with flying cars and stuff, which we don't have yet. I'm getting a trade up on mine this next week. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, what do you see happening in the next few years? I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about transhumanism a lot. Uh, there's obviously a, techno- a technocratic sort of covert and not so covert revolution happening uh there's a virtual revolution happening you know what what do you foresee in the next few years i think we're going to see them turn up the heat um i've even wondered if we're actually going to have elections next year uh it's i mean there's just there's just so many possible things that could go on they they have they have so many triggers that they could trip uh at at the same time um I have a confidence that they're not in control of this, that Almighty God is, uh, that when you listen to people like Lindsay Williams and others, uh, God has caused some division within the Illuminati that the, you know, the, the plan always was to financially collapse America and then reboot it to become a, an occultic utopia. That's the, you know, the phoenix rising up. Right. Uh, well, some, of the, some of the chatter that I have gotten is now that all the wealth has been moved into Asia, they don't want to give it up. And so it's like, we don't care what you do, but you're not going to reboot America, and you're not going to make it the, the, the center that now that we have the finances and, and stuff here, we want, we want the Chinese yen to become the world currency, and it's going to, it gets that way. We want it to stay that way. And so I think God has divided them to give us more time. That uh, and and when when the exact trigger is going to be tripped, they wanted it done in 2014, 2013. They they wanted it done then, and they still don't have it done. And I, I think it's surely by the the grace of God, because God is saying, "I need time to wake up my body. Mm. I I need time for. I mean, the it's, it's almost like Jesus needs to be walking our shores right now, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." If you want to get into the kingdom, all of us need to begin really repenting and to seeking the face of God and saying, "God, where has Babylon gotten into me?" Uh, er, you know, everything that I write in my book, even the last three chapters about, a, you know, a positive understanding of the commandments, it's not about being culturally Jewish. It's simply about being biblically accurate. If we have a God that never changes, if whatever God says is wrong will be forever be wrong, whatever God says is right will forever be right. And it, it's not a matter of salvation as it is learning how to move in his kingdom. Do, do people get into legalistic things? Absolutely. But I, I was raised in a Baptist church that was extremely legalistic. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I wear a beard because, you know, for me, it, it hides my double chin for one reason, but my, my <laughs> wife tends to like the, the beard. 
Uh, but in, in the Baptist church that I was raised, I, I, would, I would not be accepted. I would never be allowed in the pulpit. Really? Oh, yeah. Or if your hair's too long or, you know, you're, you're not quite dressed right or how if dare you, you the pulpit without a tie. But Jesus, but no, Jesus, it's, it's the unpardonable sin, you know, because Jesus had a short haircut, clean, you know, clean shaven face. Yeah. You know, he did wear a suit. Now, I know he was kind of ahead of the times, but he wore a suit and tie when he preached back. In I believe the- he did have a soul patch, though. <laughs> <laughs> so those are OK. No, but that's really fascinating. I mean, that, yeah, that's totally uh, I, we've talked about the legalistic thing quite a bit. And, um but the, the, the balance is Jesus is the matrix that we look through. Right. Understand how to walk in the commandments. The, the rabbis weren't getting it right. They, they had gotten so into their own interpretation, which later on was calif- you know, codified into the Talmud. But Jesus is the example. And, you know, you and I, if we were really honest with ourselves, a lot of things that we're seeing on Christian TV today, could you see Jesus, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter, or any of those doing that mess? Mm. You know, I think most would say not. No. And so if we can't see them doing it, why are we doing it? How about just going back to the book? Because a lot of the things that we're seeing that we're, call, we're calling the move of the Spirit, or calling this is the way that you build a mega church or whatever, are nothing more than, than modified manifestations of Babylon. Right. And, it, and it's preparing the herd, if you will, to follow the after the Antichrist when he shows up. Right, yeah. Uh, definitely agree. I mean, I, you, uh, <clears throat> you state here that uh, what you pretty much just summarized, which is that you know, in, in one of your chapters, uh, your, your purpose is not to um, serve or, or make all Christians culturally Jewish, uh, but to examine the doctrine and, and to, um, and I, I sort of, I think we agree with that. In that, you know, a lot of what the sort of the parameters that God set for us, it's never. It's never a command to do it to please God and per se. It's more a protection, uh, in my opinion, anyway, it, it, f- to protect us from the things that are destructive to to us. You know, so um, but when you but when you look at Adam had commandments in the Garden of Eden, and it wasn't just don't eat of that tree. It was you were to guard and to protect the the garden. You were to cultivate the garden. He had some basic commandments. If he hadn't of, he could have never have sinned. But all but one of those commandments, all the others of keeping and dressing the garden and, and words of dominion, all these commandments were given to him by God to either protect him or to empower him. And I, I think that's their true purpose today is when I, when I look at Jesus as my example and the Apostle Paul is my example, and I begin to learn how to walk in them, not, not like the, the religious, overzealous, you know, legalistic people do, but as, as this, is how you, this is how you walk the kingdom. You know, there's certain things that we got to do as American citizens, if you want to be an American citizen. And this is how Americans live. This is how we function within our government. It's the same thing with the kingdom of God, except, you know, we we don't have Washington. We have the throne of God that we've got to deal with. And and Jesus came and, and, you know, why why was his ministry three and a half years? Do you guys know? Um, I've heard different theories, but go ahead. (laughs) The original Torah portion as given by Moses, not later on, you know, they went to a year cycle with Nehemiah and Ezra when they developed the synagogal system, but the original, uh, the original way that Moses gave it before he left, it took them three and a half years to go through. Right, okay, yeah, I I have heard that. Jesus came and said, none of you guys have this right. This is how you do it. And so he walked an entire Torah cycle before all the people saying, this is what I meant when I said. (laughs) 
And so when we, when we look at Jesus becomes that, that looking glass or the eyeglasses that we put on to, to perceive how we're supposed to walk. And if, if living like Jesus and doing the things the way that Jesus did them is wrong, then count me guilty. Absolutely. That's, um, I think that's a, a pretty good place to start wrapping it up here. Basil, do you have any, anything to add or to comment? Basil? Oops, sorry. Had my mute button on. Okay. Um, I said, uh, no, I mean, this has been great. I'm really fascinated. I really want to check out the book. And I think everybody out there uh, feels the same way. And I, uh, you know, I think one of these days we might have to get you and your wife on here to talk a little bit more about your adventures. I need to send you guys a copy of her book. I think you'd enjoy it. I think so, too. So, do you have a, a website and things like that? We have several. The uh, the one that we're doing for like the podcast and with the Shine Art Directive and Mary's book is KingdomIntelligenceBriefing.com. Uh, if you're interested in studying for ministry, our uh, website for the school is Biblical-Life.com. And everything about the school is the, the name of the school is Learning to Live Biblically. Awesome. Very good. So everybody, make sure to go check that out. Get in touch. Get the book. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of resources there, I'm sure, to, so you can learn more about uh, the Shinar Project. And so, you know, I got to say, Dr. Mike, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been really great. It's been a pleasure, and I want to commend both of you on the, on the two documentaries that you, uh, that you guys have done. Uh, they're phenomenal. Thank you very much. Good job, Gons. Why <laughs> <laughs> do you, huh? I'm moral support. <laughs> yeah, that, that was uh, the the film. The first one was published in 2011, and that prompted. Uh, that was right before I met Basil, and then that led to Canary Cry Radio. And uh, so, I mean, it, it's all been kind of a. I feel that it's been a God thing. Yeah, uh, you know, tail spinning all that stuff. So. I, I, comm I commend this younger generation because not only do you get the word out, you do it in such a way as to grab the attention uh, of, the, of your generation. Amen. Well, thank you very much for that. And there you go, everybody. That was Dr. Michael Lake. Make sure to check out his new book, The Sheena Directive. There you have it, everybody. That was Dr. Michael Lake. Make sure to check that stuff out. And as soon as we possibly can, uh, maybe we'll get his book in the Amazon store on canarycryradio.com. Um, all right. Well, anything else, Mr. Gons? Uh, Facebook, iTunes, Twitter. Oh, yeah. We have all those things. Yep. We have a Facebook. Most of you, 2,020 of you already know about our Facebook. But uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there who has not yet gone and liked our page. So please go do that. Show us to your friends. Um, really, just to spread the word and um, you know get the word of God out there and a little bit of truth in everybody's lives. And if you have not yet uh, left a rating or a review on iTunes, that also is a, a big help for us. Let other people know why you think we're so special and we have our uh, first review in for 2015 by superfit25 who said great and interesting shows true believers in god uh, god's messiah jesus not afraid to approach all the different things happening in the world so thank you superfit25 superfit25 there's thank other you, other people adam carr and Frank i don't think superfit25 made any of the new year's resolutions that you and i did to get super fit. 
because oh. they're already super fit. Yeah. <laughs> and 25. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe that's... Um... All right. So... I don't know. Anyways, we're not going to go any further with that. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Please go to iTunes. Do that. That'll be awesome. Um, what else? We got a Twitter. We got a Twitter. We got our email list. Email um, list. Email list. And you and the email list is not just an email list. We actually send out audio emails for everybody, and you get a little bit more of a personal uh, touch on that. And also... If you go and you are a supporter of Canary Cry Radio at canarycryradio.com under the support tab, you'll be put on this very special best friends email list. And I believe last time they got some special audio from the Carl Tykrib uh, interview. Yeah, they got a, they got some extra. What, what happened was we had finished a conversation with Carl Tykrib and he uh he kept we kept talking afterwards and there was some good stuff there so i thought i'd include it including um you know uh your mother playing matchmaker but you have to be part of that to hear that that <laughs> was a little bit oversharing i think but there you go why interested in that it's not oversharing this is this is settle down boy we're, we're, we're trying to do you a service <laughs> trying to trying to make this more than just a, a podcast for the spiritually discerned Basil, we're trying to do you a favor. Okay. <laughs> so if you'd like to hear about my mother trying to set me up, um, you can go ahead and go to canarycryradio.com. Under the support tab, you can make uh, a monthly subscription, which is awesome, and a couple of different amounts there. But if commitment's not your thing, you can always make a one-time donation in any amount. So please consider doing that. Um, you guys have been so generous and so awesome. And it's because of you that we've been able to stay on the air for this long. And uh, hopefully we can keep making it happen. So there you go. Thank yep. you very much. Yep. All right, everybody. So that's it for this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. <laughs> <laughs>